Welcome, everyone, to episode 62 of Some Like It, Scott, part of the Media Plug Podcast Network. I'm your host, Scott Shelton, and on this week's episode of the podcast, we are talking about our token foreign film of the year. Last year, it was Alfonso Cuaron's Mexican slice of life film, Roma. This year, it's Bong Joon-ho's Korean black comedy thriller, Parasite. Before we get to that, however, with me, as always, I have my co-host, Scott Harvey. Scott, how are you doing today? You promised everyone updates about the mock trial season. You guys had your first tournament this weekend. How did it go? Yeah, I'm a man of my word, Scott. We actually had our first two tournaments. We had one team competing uh, on campus at our Demon Deacon Invitational and one team competing up at Elon. That's where I was spending my weekend. Uh, and both teams uh, put in a solid performance for the first tournament of the year. I was I was pretty happy with, uh, you know, the, the, the results in terms of uh, the some of the individual performances, I think, were really strong. I think everybody had highlights and lowlights. We had, took home a total of five individual awards between the two teams. Um, and I think uh, things will only go up uh, for the teams as a whole as the season continues. And it will continue this week because we're headed out to Baltimore and Williamsburg uh, competing separately again this weekend. Uh, I'll be in Virginia uh, and looking forward to it. It's exciting stuff. You know, like you said, the, you know, always a little jitters starting out and then things improve. I remember that from my mock trial days as well. So yeah, sure. You know, we had several people who, first time ever doing this sort of thing. And so exactly. uh, it's it's not the kind of thing that you could just jump into and uh, you, know, you be Johnny Cochran immediately. So, uh, but everyone, I, but everyone have, wants to be Courtney B. Vance too, for that matter. So yes, that is true. But so, a lot of raw talent that I think will only get better as the year goes on. Well, the trending in the right direction is what matters. And so starting from a nice low point to go up from there. Hey, it wasn't that low. It could no, have been I'm a kidding. lot worse. Trust me, based on some of the teams I've uh, <laughs> Yeah, no, the practice trials don't necessarily always get you competition ready for when when it counts. Oh yeah, definitely. So, all right, well, enough enough of mock trial. The real reason our uh, listeners hopefully came today is because they wanted to hear about an indie movie. You know, Scott, we we did say technically when we were recording last week we were going to talk about uh, Jojo Rabbit, but some sharp editing skills from my part actually cut that out. So there wasn't a new report about what we'd be talking about this week, uh, but we are talking about Parasite, not Jojo Rabbit. Unfortunately, the limited release for Jojo Rabbit precluded us from talking about it this week. We'll see if it pops back up later, but sometimes it's hard to fit all these movies in. Anyway, though, Parasite, directed by Bong Joon-ho of Snowpiercer and Okja fame, at least in the U.S. That's probably what he's best known for. Winner, And of course, Parasite, winner of the Palm Dorit can this year. It's a film that follows the struggling lower class Kim family when their son Kiwoo or Kevin, played by Choi Woo-shik, is given the opportunity to tutor English to the daughter of the wealthy upper class Park family. After passing his interview with Mrs. Park, played by Cho Yeo-jung, Kiwoo begins to learn of other ways that his family may be able to insinuate themselves into the lives of the Park family through other jobs for his sister, his father, and finally his mother. However, things are not all sunshine and roses as the Kims may have expected as the rest of the movie unfolds a story where friction between these two families may just in fact start a fire. Scott, did you think Parasite's blend of satire, comedy, and drama created a masterpiece like some or maybe even many critics are saying? Or did you think that it made for something a little less potent? 
Yeah, I think I said this recently about, I think it was, maybe it was Hustlers. Um, but I think, actually, I want to emphasize it even more so with this movie, more so than any movie this year, probably. If you haven't seen this movie, if you don't know much about this movie, don't listen to any more of this podcast, honestly. Um, because you will best appreciate this film. And this is this is something that people have consistently said. Um if you know very little about it going in. And I, Scott, I don't know how much you knew about it going in, but I did not know very much. I knew this was, of course, Bong Joon-ho. Um, as you said, I've seen Snowpiercer. I enjoy that movie. Uh, but this is first Korean um, language movie since Mother back in 2013. Um, and, you know, it, it of course won the Palme d'Or at Cannes, uh, at Cannes, well, uh, sorry, French people, at Cannes. Um, and so it was, you know, it was awarded the top prize at that particular film festival, um, which is always something that um, is, is going to catch the eye of people who follow the film world. Yeah. Um, Some say the most prestigious award on the festival circuit yeah. across the festivals. And it's only been picking up traction since they're getting just absolutely rave reviews. And it set limited release box office records last weekend. It did. Yeah. Go, going from a movie that was not on my radar at all to man, I really need to see this. And after seeing it, Scott, I'm absolutely glad that I did. This is uh, an extraordinary movie. Um, I think, to use your word that you asked there in the question, I think it is a masterpiece. Um, and without a doubt, one of the defining movies of 2019. Um, it, it is almost unclassifiable from a genre perspective. And that's how Bong Joon-ho's movies, it seems like they're increasingly becoming like that. Snowpiercer had so many different things going on in that movie. Um, but not dissimilar to um, to Snowpiercer, there's sort of this classist comedy going on at the heart uh, of what's going on in Parasite. You have this upstairs, downstairs dynamic, figuratively and literally, uh, between the Park family and the Kim family. Um, the Kims being the lower class family, uh, who are sort of living in squalor, really, um, contrasted with the clean, affluent lifestyle of the the Park family, who, as you said, they they slowly insinuate themselves into their lives. And again, if you don't know much about this movie, um, turn it off. Don't listen, because uh, I, I didn't know exactly where the movie was going uh, in terms of the ways that they do find to insinuate themselves into their the Park family's lives. But I was absolutely delighted for the ride once I sort of picked up on where the plot was going a little bit early in the movie. But I think even if you pick up where it's going early in the movie, it takes so many left turns uh, in the in the middle half and even uh, in the third act as well. That it runs a few red lights too on, on the way. <laughs> yeah, no, it, it keeps you guessing all the way from beginning to end. And I love that in a movie. I love the way that it con it's constantly shifting your perspective uh, on how you see the characters. And Scott, you know, one thing that I, I love in a movie, one theme that I love in a movie is when a movie has moral ambiguity. Uh, and this movie has it in spades, I think. There, there is no character who is wholly good or wholly evil. Uh, the movie wants us to develop for ourselves our own feelings about um, these people and the lifestyles that they are living. Um, and I, I really appreciate when a movie can take uh, a very complex look at human nature in a way that Parasite does, I think. It's also just an incredibly entertaining movie. I mean, you talk about this being a foreign film, and I think that instantly is going to turn off um, a lot of people. Maybe some people who listen to this podcast um, and are sort of more the casual movie-going fan uh, who isn't going to seek out 
this foreign movie that they don't really know much about um, that they're going to have to read the subtitles for and whatever. But I have to say, like, please give this movie a chance, even if foreign films are not something that you usually watch, even if you've never seen a Bong Joon-ho movie. Uh, this is conventionally one of the most entertaining movies of the year, no matter what language it is, no matter who you are, no matter what, what you bring into the movie. Um, like I said, it has it has great moments of comedy. It is thrilling. It is saying something provocative. Um, it is saying a lot, a lot of things, uh, some of which I probably haven't even uh, fully wrapped my head around. Honestly, there's, there's so many metaphors and everything going on in this movie that even the characters comment on how there's a lot of metaphors. Um, it's very metaphorical. But this movie, in addition to you know being being entertaining, is it, it bears a lot of similarities to you know Scott. I think the the most prominent um, comparison that some people have made is the movies of Jordan Peele, for example. Um, Us uh, was one we talked about earlier this year with uh, uh, its critique of uh, you know it also got into the class critique for sure. Um, a lot of class it, critiques this year. Albeit in, in, in slightly different ways than Parasite, but uh, also sort of fashioned as a sort of home invasion thriller, which is kind of what Parasite becomes at certain points in the movie. Um, and so it bears similarities to us. I think it's a more successful movie than us. And there, I think there it bears some similarities to Joker too, honestly. Okay. Yeah. The, I mean, that's for, that might be interesting to talk about as well. But um, I think that it's good to bring both of those movies up. The reason I do bring uh, us up is because I think that tells you. Um, what you need to know about whether you will enjoy this movie or not. Like if you like Jordan Peele's movies, then you're going to like this movie probably whether it is, you know, a foreign movie or not. Um, yeah, I agree. This could have very easily been made by an American director in English. And probably someday we will be, we will get the American version of this and it probably won't be anywhere near as good as this, but I don't know. Uh, I feel like Bong Joon-ho might just go and direct an English version. Of that's true. He could do that. He could pull a Hitchcock and you know, make the same movie twice. But um, in some, an, an amazing movie, uh, absolutely lived up to all of the hype I heard about it, but with the caveat that you should not try to learn as little as possible about this movie before going in uh, and just let the delightful surprises that come at every turn uh, overwhelm you because it's it's truly something to behold. And I really just can't wait to go watch this movie again. Yeah, no, I was going to say the same thing. I feel like I really want and need to go watch this movie again i don't know if i necessarily there's just so many movies i don't know if i'll go and see it in theaters again but i do want to rewatch it if for no other reason that i don't want to have to constantly be turning my vision towards the subtitles because i felt it actually really difficult sometimes to look away from the characters themselves that's how good these performances are i think yeah. almost all of them are really strong uh to you know, read those subtitles because I want to like look at what their faces, you know, what their faces are doing because I think that this movie is doing so much both, you know, of course with its with its script, with its writing, but also with uh, what with what's going on non-verbally on screen as well. I think that's a critical part of this film. And so there, I mean, one, there are some lines where I just chose not to look down at what they were saying because I didn't think it was as important as what was going on, you know, on the screen itself in the scene. And so I I, I do want to get the chance to do a little bit more of that now that I know the plot i know some of the some of the back and forth that, that happens already and just essentially devote a little bit more time to you know watching these performances a little bit more because that was one of the things it's always, it's always one of the things i feel like with a foreign language film it happened with roma last year too that you do you know whether you like it or not you spend a little bit of time reading reading the subtitles and so it takes you a little bit away from the performances been one of the things that was so awesome about roma is that some of those performances still pushed through that you know whether it's yulitz aparicio or i'm forgetting the mother's name 
Uh, Marina right. Tavera. Yeah, Marina Tavera. I think both those performances are fantastic. And I think some of the, the main performances here as well uh, are phenomenal. And just to echo some of the other things that you're saying, you know, I think I I joked, you know, right before we started recording that, you know, I my letterbox review almost was us, but good, which is a little bit too hot of a take because I do like us. It was a good movie, but it just doesn't compare it to this film, in my opinion. I do think that it, at first I thought that the, I thought maybe the comparisons were a little bit more uh, stark, stark and, and the movies were a little bit more similar. And now that I've thought a little bit more about it, I think that the actual critiques that it's making are a little bit different. And of course, the way it goes about making those critiques are, are different. And uh, and so I, I've cooled on that perspective a little bit, but this movie is really good. It's much better than us. You know, I, I personally like to get out more than us. Some people, I think a lot of people felt similarly, but some people felt differently. Um, and I just thought that this movie blew us out of the water. I mean, we were talking again right before coming on air that us is not a movie that has stuck, stuck with us very much uh, over the course of the year. We'll see, we'll see, you know, where, if it, if it gets into any of our awards and we start thinking about awards in a couple months for ourselves, but I think Parasite's going to stick with me, you know, years from now is the kind of movie that years from now is going to stick with me. And one of the reasons of that, and you talked about guessing it both ways, you know, in us, yes, it had, you know, plot twists. It left me with things to think about and things that I did think about for a good deal of time after the movie ended and, you know, and trying to interpret what some of those things are. And it's not that anything is super confusing about Parasite. I think there's a lot to think about, but one of the things is the the twists that do happen and the, and the way these characters develop and the characters that are introduced even is so, I guess it, it, in many ways it is so surprising, right? Like I get through the first half of the movie. I'm like, you know, I check my watch I'm like, Oh, okay. We're an hour in. I don't really know where this movie's going to go next because you know, what has happened in the film, you know, I, the whole family has gotten, you know, insinuated themselves into the lives of the, of the parks. I'm like, I'm not exactly sure where it's going to go next. Like, I guess things are probably going to some tension or something's going to arise. And I mean, yes, that does happen. But some, I mean, what happens in the second half of the movie is just, is so insane in some ways and so unexpected and so smart. And so, I guess just introducing a completely new element to the conversation of that movie and of the comparison between, you know, these, these classes comparisons that I thought was brilliant, unexpected and really well done. I still have so many thoughts about the ending and I feel, feel like we're going to spend a lot of time today talking about the ending and the finale. And I'm still trying to piece through those things, but I just think what the movie is doing is really smart, really clever and it's not that I'm confused and, and don't know what to think. It's just that I am thinking a lot of things. Yeah, totally. And I, I will be interested to see how the hype for this movie only increases, if it does increase, to the point where, you know, could it insinuate itself in the best picture conversation in the way that Roma did last year? Uh, I, I do wonder. I, I feel like it maybe has a little bit more of an uphill battle than Roma did. But Why? at the same time, what what's that? Why do you think it has a more of an uphill battle I than think Roma it did? Doesn't, it, has, it doesn't have a director who uh, is established outside of the foreign language film realm, really. I mean, st- yes, he has Snowpiercer and Ogja, but these weren't award-nominated, award-winning films. Um, and I think Alfonso Cuaron was someone who yeah. came in with Gravity and Children of Men and are already a very well-established director to the point where um, even the mainstream film audience was going to be paying attention to what his next project was going to be. I think Bong, yes, has is absolutely well known. He's probably the most famous Korean filmmaker at this point, either him or Park Chan-wook. But um, I think that uh, outside of like film inner, inner circles in the film world, um, people aren't like eagerly awaiting his next project in the same way that 
um, that they are perhaps with an Alfonso Cuaron movie. So I think uh, Roma had that going for it as well. But I do think everyone has just been so positive and not just giving it positive reviews, but like saying the movie's a masterpiece, one of the best of the year, that I think it's going to be hard for the Academy to ignore certain, I mean, of course, in the foreign language category, which is, I mean, it's no brainer to get nominated there, I would say. But even in the best picture category, I think um, I'd be interested to see what's going to happen. Yeah, I, you know, we'll, I mean, we will talk about all, all of this in the coming months for sure. And I'm really excited to start talking about those things too. Uh, I think that it's definitely possible that it gets a nomination. I'd be shocked if it won. Like, totally I don't think it's going to win now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That, I mean, I, we'll see what shakes out if this ends up being my pick for, you know, best picture of the year. Um, but I mean, it would be wild if the Academy chose this movie for best picture. Yeah, imagine that Green Book followed up by Parasite. <laughs> <laughs> People would scratch their heads in the Wikipedia page on that one 60 <laughs> years from now. No, it's spot on. Well, I guess to jump into some more specifics, why don't we, you know, it's hard, I think, to talk about individual performances and rather group performances. I think it's best to start with the Kim family. I mean, kind of the, for the lack of a better way to put it, the protagonist family of, of the film, or at least the the one that we start with and probably the one we spend the most time with. And of course, four-person family here. You have the father, mother, son, and daughter. Uh, Ki Wu. I'm forgetting the, the daughter's name. Uh, Ki Jung. Yeah, there we go. It, the, yeah, we're just gonna go with that. I <laughs> I need to pull it. I know. I I didn't do my homework well enough. I didn't write all the names down before this, and I've forgotten them. But what did you think of these performances? What did you think of these characters? Obviously, saving your thoughts on how the ultimate endpoint of the movie, because we will just talk about the finale, but. The Kim family, Scott, what did you think of of them? Yeah, so I kind of had three standout performances in the cast overall, I think. And my standout from the, I had one from the Park family, one from the Kim family, one um, who was not associated with either family. Um, and I think that from the Kim family, my standout is going to, I'm, I'm going to keep it simple and go with Kang Ho Song, who plays uh, Kai Tech, the father uh, of the Kim family. Uh, he's a very famous Korean actor. Um, stars in a lot of Bong's movies and a lot of other famous Korean movies. And I think uh, he shows off his chops very well here to uh, what will hopefully be a wider audience. Um, he's a very sort of dry and funny character, I think, at, at some points in the movie. Uh, but I also think there's great emotional depth, you know, heft to his character, particularly in the climactic stages of the movie. Um, you, you really start to see that, hey, this is his family. Um, and in some ways, maybe he is the one who is responsible for all of them being forced to put themselves in this situation uh, because, you know, he's the he's the father of the household. But uh, I believe don't we learn he's been laid off or fired from his job or something. Um, and, uh, you know, he, he's not out there uh, making money for the family, supporting the family like you would expect the, you know, quote unquote, man of the household to do. Um, and so. You know, he, he more than anyone perhaps has to uh, own up to some of the responsibility uh, of, you know, the the consequences of their actions that that ultimately ensue. And I think, uh, again, like I said, particularly in the climactic stages, dancing around spoilers a little bit, um, I think that uh, he his this character goes through a serious emotional arc. Um, and I think that I really bought it every step of the way. Uh, and I think uh, that Song Kang Ho's performance um, you know, re re really adds to that and is definitely one of the standouts uh, from the cast. Yeah, I think he's, in terms of just characters and abstracting a little bit from the performances for a moment, I think he's the most interesting character in the Kim family in, in some of the ways, 
I mean, I, I, this is maybe going too far, but like not every, I think the movie is totally engrossing, but not every character is particularly interesting. And I didn't feel particularly invested in every character. I felt very invested in this particular character's arc. You know, the, the father here at first, I didn't know how much of a role he'd, ha he'd be playing in the film. Um, you asked earlier how much I knew about the movie. I knew nothing about the movie other than the fact that it was Bong Joon-ho, Korean, and everyone is freaking loving this movie uh, when they see it. And so I came in not really knowing that he was the top bill on the movie, you know, blah, 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 blah. I mean, his top bill doesn't really mean that much, but it just means that you know, he is this very established Korean actor and he was probably the most famous person in the movie. And so he, and, and he gets that moment, right? You know, he, maybe he's MIA to an extent for the first 30 to 45 minutes of the movie. But once he is, you know, inserted himself into the lives of the Park family, his narrative, his arc, and his, you know, the fact that he is an unemployed, you know, he's an unemployed driver, uh, but then being, of course, employed by the Park family as, as their driver, I think there's a lot going on there in his relationships, both with his, uh, his son uh, and his wife, and then particularly the Park family, is it's really ripe for him to knock it out of the park. And I think he did knock it out of the park. It was a fantastic, fantastic performance. I wasn't even, you know, even at the very end there, I, you, of course, you get a little bit of foreshadowing with those spoilers that you're alluding to. And you're with it along the way because you can you can see, you know, his, I don't know, the his string being tightly wound over the course of the film by very particular things that are happening. And the way that string breaks at the end is a fascinating uh, moment in a fascinating finale to the movie. Yeah. yeah, without saying more, there are a lot of like Schrodinger's cat moments in this movie and uh, definitely one of the most satisfying or one, one of the most interesting ones uh, involves his character and comes up in a very climactic moment of the movie. But I, I, you know, I won't say too much for spoilers. Yeah, and so if I had to pick someone else, because I, he would have been my pick for you know one person out of, the, out of the Kim family as well. But if I had to pick someone else, I think one of the characters that I found uh, more interesting in the family is the daughter. I think that you know I was looking up her name. Is it Choi Woo Shik? No, that's the son. Uh, Park So Dam or Park So Dam. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, plays Ki Jung, Ki Jung Kim or Kim Ki Jung. And I I just found her performance le less the character and more the performance really awesome. I think she just really owns the the screen in the moments where she becomes Jessica, this this art therapist, this art psychologist, uh, tutoring the young Park son, uh, whose name I'm forgetting off the top of my head because apparently I'm just forgetting everyone's names in this movie because, I don't know, it's just not important because all the characters are very much themselves and you can identify all of them on screen. But I think that that, that performance is really engrossing on screen and it was hilarious to see the way that she interacted with Mrs. Park, who maybe we'll talk about in a second. And I thought that she was able to uh, own that screen time so well. But then when you see like the authentic side of her, I think it's such an interesting juxtaposition just in the way as well with the, with the son who also has an interesting, uh, some interesting moments when you compare both like his authentic self and this version of himself that he puts on to be the tutor uh, for the park daughter. And so, no, I think I thought that, um, that was another fantastic performance in, in the Kim family, but really overall, I think all four of them did a good job. Yeah, I said something stupid earlier, though. I think I've, I'm mixed up in my concepts. What I meant to say was there are a lot of Chekhov's guns in this movie, um, and there's one that comes around uh, with respect to the the Kim Kai Tech character uh, at the very end. That is, uh, you know, right up there with the flamethrower moment from uh, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. I think when this particular um, 
it's not even an object really it is a reaction that uh resurfaces in the end of the movie uh and it's it's a point where where Kaitech really reaches his uh his boiling point obviously we talked about the kim family uh now it makes sense to talk about the park family the other the other side of the coin here in, in terms of the kind of upstairs downstairs dynamic that you were talking about at least in terms of class senses scott you have again mother father son daughter here also a housekeeper uh if you consider her a part of the family but um, she is not technically part of the Park family. So, yeah, any standout performance here? I know I, I have one in particular in mind, which is actually my favorite performance in the movie. Um, but you can go first. Yeah, so my standout from the Parks is definitely Yo Jung Jo, who plays the mother of the family. Um, yeah. I think that uh, this is this is a really interesting and layered character um, that reveals itself over the course of the movie. She uh, seems to be a woman who, you know, has it all together. I, I think in some in some ways, her her arc is like not nothing, n- not something that we haven't seen before, but uh, s- still interesting in the way that it's portrayed. She's she seems like she has it all together. She, um, you know, lives in this big house, um, is supported by her husband, um, and yet there's this sort of um, you know I- empty, like lonely woman in empty house type of uh, concept going on with um, with her and. Uh, she especially the way that we first in like because the first impression yeah. you get of her is so different than i think what she ends up being because she's like asleep outside in their lawn and the housekeeper has to wake her up it's unclear whether maybe she's like hung over or drunk mm-hmm. like it's very weird and then you know it's one of the many things that i don't think you at first blush always understand about a character yeah and i think that she has a hard time we see throughout the movie like relating to the other members of her family whether it's her children or um, her, definitely her husband who, well, well, I mean, he's not outwardly villainized. Nobody in this movie is outwardly villainized, but, um, he, he is kind of what you would expect from this husband character. He's, uh, obviously, you know, very well off. Yes. And and very involved with his work. Um, doesn't, doesn't pay much attention to, um, his wife during the rare occasions that he is at home. Yeah. Um, And, but, but at the same time, clearly caring very much about his family. Yes. Yes, that is true. And I think, yeah, again, that's where some of the ambiguity yeah, absolutely. comes in. Yeah. Um, but yeah, th- there's there's just some, I, I think that this character, uh, like like I said, develops in really interesting ways, vulnerabilities over the course of this movie that I think um, <coughs> we don't necessarily see um, coming. And the way that she starts relating to the, the Kim family and the way that they've integrated themselves into the own kind of become uh, their own part of the family, um, I think says a lot about, uh, you know, her relationships with the other characters as well. Yeah, no, this is my favorite performance in the movie. Actually, I absolutely thought this performance and this character, it, it, I guess, I guess you could say if, if the, if the father of the Kim family, um, Kai tech is the best character in the movie, I think that, uh, Mrs. Park is the best as per- the best performance. I think that the range of this character, both you know, in these times where she's being you know assertive, almost helicopter mom uh, status, but then also this person who's not a hundred percent sure what to do, a little bit frazzled, seeking advice from people that you're a little bit surprised she's seeking advice from, but then also trying to take control of situations. I think it shows such a wide range and really speaks to you know, even though I don't think she's necessarily the most interesting or the most complicated character, a really nuanced character, nevertheless, that, that's being developed here and and not one and one that could have easily been kind of, I don't know, caricatured, uh, you know, caricatured in some ways as the 
you know, not, you know, ditzy, but cares about, you, you know what I'm saying for like, there's moments where you feel like it could have gone wholesale down one path and it mm -hmm. didn't. And it, and it stayed really complicated. Like I think all these characters do. And I, something I really appreciate because it would have been so easy to take the easy, the easy way out uh, on, on this character in particular. And I was, so I was really satisfied with that. And I was really satisfied with the performance. Just thought it was great range. Uh, if I had to pick another character to call out, the son and daughter here are much younger and, and just have a lot less to do. So I guess I'd have to go with Mr. Park, who you also uh, spoke on briefly there. And, and we'll just kind of echo those sentiments about, you know, the character is layered and nuanced enough where he, you know, is he is this businessman. He is absent from his family's life. He but at the same time still very much cares and, you know, is engaged in some moments, maybe not necessarily engaged with his wife, but engaged with the family. So to yeah, say. he's still like, let's go on this camping trip over the weekend, which, you know, is maybe not something a decision you would expect his character to to make. Like, totally. You, you might expect him to say, you know, I'm too busy with work or whatever. Like, I don't have time for that. Yeah. In fact, he says the opposite. He says, I took off from work for yeah. this so we could do this. Mm -hmm. And, you know, he has the walkie talkies with his son, uh, which is always. Yeah. yeah, which is he just has an interesting relationship with his kids, even if he has a more maybe even more complicated relationship with his wife. And so I think that that character is able to uh, perform that uh, equally as well. Yeah, and of course, a lot of the class critique comes in through this character. I'll just get to the spoiler at this point, honestly, that I was alluding yeah. to. I think that the sort of Chekhov thing that I'm talking about is the the him recoiling from the odor mm -hmm. of, yeah. um, you know, the literally the body the odor of the, of the Kim family. Um, and, you know, the, the body odor that they, I, I guess, have taken on because of where they live and the conditions that they live in. Um, and, you know, the way it's the much way more metaphorical than that. But yes, of, co of course, of course, of yeah. course. Um, and everything in this movie is a lot more complex than we're probably giving it justice. Yeah. Um, but the way that that comes up in the, the climactic scene of the movie, um, I was like, it's pretty clever. Yeah, you know, I felt like it was one of those things that I saw coming. I didn't know, obviously, I didn't know what it would like to. And since we're about to go segue into the the second half of the movie, the the finale, even um, we can talk about those two performances that we haven't talked about yet, and then we can talk about you know that climactic end scene as well. But I, to to your point though, I think that I saw it felt like something was going to come there, like the tension was going to break. You see it happen several times. It feels like it's foreshadowed. I just didn't necessarily expect it to become what it ended up being. Yeah. So and, and so with that being said. Obviously, we've already started. We already start, did start talking about spoilers. We told you if you hadn't seen this movie, just turn the podcast off and go watch the movie. Uh, but we are going to go into full spoilers here, and that reaction is, of course, the fact that in this climactic scene at the end, which we'll talk about the character that's that's new to this scene in a moment. But in that climactic scene towards the end of the movie, the fact that in this moment where this deranged man who's been living in the basement of the Park family for four years, uh, evading loan sharks, who's the husband of their former housekeeper. He, you know, after, of course, his wife has been killed by the Kim family uh, in an attempt to salvage, you know, their standing with with the Park family in a, in a moment that's so chaotic. And so, you know, to your point, in, you, you said at the beginning, enjoyable, engaging, although it checks all the boxes, that particular scene. It, it felt so choreographed in a way that it's a weird thing to maybe say about this movie, but it was really it was really well done. And then you have this climax scene. He escapes. He is trying to take vengeance uh, for the death of his wife by killing the mom uh, of the Kim family, who is the one who, I guess, technically killed the wife. Sorry, not the wife, his wife. Uh, he comes out, first off, like bludgeons uh, Ki Woo uh, oh. in, in, with, the, with the stone. Sends him into a coma, yeah. Yeah, puts him into a coma with the stone that he had been carrying around for most of the film. 
Uh, yeah, then, that's one of those things that I'm like, I think that went over my head, the whole st- significance of the stone. Yeah, we can maybe talk about that. I wanted <laughs> I wanted to bring that up. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, but in this climactic moment, he goes outside, he stabs, um, he stabs Key, T- I'm already forgetting the daughter's name. Uh, he stabs Jessica. She goes Ki- by Jessica. Ki- so Jung, yeah. Ki Jung, there we go, yeah. Ki Jung, um, because she's the one holding the cake. I'm not 100% sure why. Actually, I guess she's just the one there. And then he's looking, of course, for the mother. And in this moment where... Her dead body, yeah. I'm sorry? Sm- smells the body, yeah. Yes. Smells the body. In the moment, he he recoils as he's trying to get the keys. And by he, me, Mr. Park, is trying to get the keys from Ki uh, or Kitek. And he smells the body, recoils. So in this moment of now, Kitek has the knife, could just go right there and kill the, the deranged guy who's you know trying to kill his own wife, but instead takes the time to stab Mr. Park instead to death at, the, at this reaction, at this uh, this treatment of, uh, you know, symbolic treatment of uh, him and his family and, and people like him. Yeah. And then of course uh, escapes in a way that we can talk about too. But Scott, that is the climactic moment. And you know, what my overall question here that I want to talk about with the time that we have left, and of course tying tying in the performance uh, that you are still alluding that you alluded to earlier is one of your favorite performances as well. Uh, and this finale is: Do you think that the ending goes off the rails? No, I, that's an interesting question. Um, I do want to ma- so I do want to mention the performance. Well, yeah, go ahead. Jong Un Lee, who plays the housekeeper, um, I think probably the most surprising performance in the movie because uh, again, someone who's depicted in a very particular way at the beginning of the movie, like she has it all together, but we discover this secret about her that her, she's had her husband down in the basement of the house for a couple of years and her performance uh, becomes, you know, deranged almost by, you know, the time she shows up at the house again um, while the, the parks are away on the camping trip. Um, you don't yeah, really And know. you don't even understand why the fact that her like face is beaten up. And- yeah. Um, and I think the, she, we get the full range of emotions from this character. Um, and she was kept, kept me guessing at every, um, every stage. So definitely one of those standouts for me, Jong Un Lee. I'm not sure whether, I, I, I mean, I don't think the ending, I don't think the ending goes off the rails. I think that this movie, the, the way that the, the tension builds in this movie, I think that a violent episode was always bound to occur, um, I think that it is shocking for sure. Some of, some of the violence. I mean, you mentioned the way that the housekeeper dies. I mean, she is kicked down the stairs by the mother of the, the Kim family. Um, and like you said, I think uh, uh, there's, it's a, it's a wonderfully choreographed scene, the scene where they're trying to put the house back together and cook this dish that, um, yeah, that Miss Park wants um, in like, what was it like eight minutes or something that they had to, to to do the whole thing. Uh, Mm -hmm. And yeah, it's, it's a wonderfully suspenseful sequence and it's punctuated by, they think that they've, you know, gotten out of the woods and yet the housekeeper is climbing back up the stairs to try and get into the house. And, you know, rise, Mrs. Park is right there in the kitchen and uh, right, right at the moment where you think they're going to, they're going to be revealed. Yeah, um, she just kicks her right back down the stairs. So shocking. But I think that one of my, ma- I guess my main takeaway from the movie that the, thematically, the thing that I can grasp perhaps the, the most um, seriously is that there's this idea about th- the way that the class system is sort of cyclical. And it's not really about, again, because of the moral ambiguity, it's not so much that uh, people of a certain class are 
inherently bad people. It's more that the power and the influence that comes with being part of the upper class and maybe even being part of the lower class um, has on certain people. Um, and we see the way that, of course, the parks are set up as the, you know, the upper class family, but as the Kims insinuate themselves into their life, they kind of become uh, by proxy a, a, an upper class family of sorts, you know, even to the extent where they are alone in the house in this one sequence, um, after the parks have left, they've sort of uh, subsumed uh, the parks and taken over their spot as, you know, the the upper crust family and then we're introduced to another layer you know literally below the surface is uh you know this this whole story with the the housekeeper and her husband and you know in in that story sort of the, the again the roles have reversed now the housekeeper has really taken on the role of the kims and the the kims have taken on the role of the parks um and we see that the things that the kim family are you know, forced to do because they, you know, now find themselves in this position that they are unfamiliar with. Um, and, you know, it's violent things. It's kicking someone down the stairs. It's locking this guy in the basement. Um, and it, I think it just goes more towards that idea that um, power corrupts. Power makes people um, do some pretty, you know, violent and evil things that they would not otherwise do. So in that regard, I think that the violence, yes, it's, it's, you know, a tad extreme and shocking, but it didn't feel out of place to me. I think, again, the movie keeps you guessing and has so many delightful twists uh, that I, I don't know that there's much that the movie could have done in that third act for me to be like, oh, wow, this went really off the rails or oh, this really felt inapposite to what happened earlier in the movie. Yeah, there's almost like two types of violence in the film, right? There's this type of violence that you're talking about that power corrupts when, you know, I think that you see from the mother here and trying to protect the status that they have gained uh, over the course of the first half of the film that results in this sort of violent struggle in the house, you know, putting things back together, kicking her downstairs. That whole scene, right, even before they knew the parks were coming, were coming back was a violent scene. Yeah, and that's how you frame it, right? You frame it as she's trying to protect her status. And I think that's like where the ambiguity comes in, right? Yep. Is she trying to protect the well-being of her family? Or is it more about she wants to maintain the role and like you know, the status, as you said, that yep. she has been able to achieve? Um yeah, at, it's probably you know, both, right? In like I think yeah. And so yeah, there's a there's a question of what 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 are our priorities that comes up there as well. Yeah, and then I think there's the second type of violence that you see in the movie, which is largely what comes up in the in you know the fina the, the those climactic moments. You have this sort of violence for vengeance, right? So this idea that you have you have Kai, Kai Tech who kills Mister Park because he's been you know dishonored, disgraced by by his reactions and repulsed. Uh, I mean, Mister Park is repulsed by the smell of him, and so he takes vengeance on yeah. that. You have the the husband of the housekeeper uh come up from the basement and you know kill well not kill but put into a coma this the son who had come down there um you know stabs jessica stabs kijung and then of course uh, attempts to kill the mother as well uh but then uh, is un is unsuccessful in that endeavor but it's this it's these acts of violence and in the form of vengeance that seem that are the one, those are the ones that are more startling, right? And and I wonder what if you have any thoughts on that sort of juxtaposition of those two types of violence. Yeah, I don't. That's an interesting. Though. I was going to add that I think that, you know, you talk about the Kai, Kai Tech stabbing Mister Park. 
out of yep. vengeance for the way that he's been disgraced. But I think it's not just the way he's been disgraced by Mr. Park. I think it's just the way that society. he's been disgraced by society, right? Yeah, uh, you, you, re you really get the sense, even if you don't necessarily see specific examples in the movie that mm -hmm. um, Mr. Park has probably, or Mr. Kim rather, has probably been subjected to this type of behavior for a large part of his life. Especially uh, as a driver. I mean, I'd imagine most yeah. people probably treated him that way. Yeah, and you know, he, his family's living in squalor. I mean. Their their house is partially decimated by a tsunami at one point in the movie, and they're not even partially; it's completely. Yeah, I mean, it's almost completely underwater. Yeah, yeah. Um, and you know, he's on a bed pat, bed bed uh, bed roll in this like big um, space that they've laid out for the people whose houses have been mm -hmm. um, destroyed by the flooding. Um, and so, yeah, I, I, that's an interesting idea uh, about the violence and, and and the comparison between the two. I, I don't know. I'd be interested to hear maybe what your thoughts are on the significance between that there are these two types of violence in the movie. That's not something that I really had thought about, but it's a good point, I think. Yeah, I'm not... The, the thing is, though, is that I'm not sure that I have an answer to it either, and maybe there isn't an answer, but it, to me, it seemed like there are two very different motivations for violence in this film, and I can't help but think that that's significant. I just think... I, I wonder what the significance might be to, to Bong, if he has... And, yeah, I mean, maybe just throw an idea out there, like, we're talking about this whole sort of family versus status thing. I think maybe the the violence that we see, the first type of violence you mentioned is more the we're, we're here to try to protect our status. Whereas I think the, the vengeance, the violence for vengeance is more protecting um, your honor and protecting the honor of your family. Um, mm -hmm. And yeah, I don't know, because I think that does become important in the final act of the movie and the idea that Ki Wu is going to like try to learn from his, learn from the mistakes that his father has made perhaps and try to make a life for himself so he can buy his father a house eventually. Um, I think that the family dynamic, they do grow closer together over the course of this entire experience. And so I think that the violence of vengeance comes more from a place of defending your personal honor, defend, defending your family's honor. Whereas the, I guess, sort of the violence of necessity is maybe more about, um, protecting the role and the status that you have managed to achieve through trickery. Yeah. I mean, and to add to that, I think one of the things that came to my mind as you were talking, and this isn't a super well thought out take, but I wonder if the violence to protect your status is, is the message around that is that it only leads to more trouble because the only thing that that kind of got them mm -hmm. was more violence. And of course, ultimately the, the death of, you know, the daughter and their family, you know, the, the Kim daughter, uh, Ki Jung. And I wonder if there's a statement around that. And I don't know that that doesn't necessarily say anything about the violence that happens later, later in the film in terms of, you know, whether that has a positive or a negative uh, result, because, you know, I mean, I guess the guy, the husband of the housekeeper does end up, of course, being killed. But yeah. uh, but uh, key tech high tech does escape, obviously, and, and he at least manages to survive if you know, even if to live out an existence that may not necessarily be desirable, but yeah, it, it's interesting. And, and I think that you've already started to allude to it. And I think it makes sense to then talk about uh, the final moments of this film, because I thought the movie was going to be over and then you get about five to 10 more minutes of the film. And I wondered what your take on the actual, you know, final scenes are. Cause for me at first I wasn't and walking into the film, I wasn't sure 
well, do we really need the last five, ten minutes of that movie? Does it does it really push the story forward? Like, I understand what it was trying to do, but did it successfully do that for you? I think, yeah, and I think a couple of a couple of reasons, maybe. One, I think because the movie does take such a dark turn, perhaps in the final act, I think there is like an element of hope in that final um, that final, you know, those final moments. First of all, you know, there's the element of hope from Kaitech's perspective that someone will actually read his Morse code message, or you know, I mean, I guess more specifically that Kiwu will read his Morse code message, which mm-hmm. does actually happen. He, he, you know, he 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 is able to see the message, but also there's there's this hope that you know, as I was talking about that um, that at, from this experience, yes, it has resulted in terrible things. Ki Wu has, you know, was in a coma. Ki Jung has been killed and Kai Tech is now trapped in the basement, like, uh, the housekeeper and her husband or the housekeeper's husband was, but, uh, he has now, he is now endeavoring to make something, make something of himself, like through sort of his own efforts, not necessarily through sort of the, the trickery and the schemes that they had to use to integrate themselves into the lives of the parks earlier in the movie. It seems like he wants to, um, pursue a different sort of lifestyle and provide for his family, uh, in a way that his father was probably never able to, so that this sort of situation doesn't repeat itself. So I like that we get sort of a, optimistic a a slightly optimistic note in the end that uh, you know maybe there is a way to make all of this work all of these dynamics that we have seen going on in the movie Uh, i think there is that element to it and then yeah i think you know just going back to that idea of the class system i i guess i I don't know through his his violent act um he has become the lowest of the low like he he has become he has taken the place of the housekeeper um, the guy hiding from the loan sharks in the basement of this rich right. family's house. Right. And so once a week, this experience has caused him this experience, which he he set out on to try and achieve, um, you know, wealth and be able to provide for his family has actually ended up having the opposite effect because he's actually even been knocked down a, a, a rung lower on the societal ladder um, by being relegated to the basement of this house. Um, mm-hmm. And, you know, spending his days banging his head against the thing to send a Morse code message out. Um, he, doesn't bang, he doesn't bang his head. That's just the housekeeper's husband. I thought that he was doing it too. Okay. What, what nah, he's, uh, he's just tapping the light. He wasn't, he wasn't. All right. Yeah, no, I, I think you're right about that. That was, that was a bad memory, but, um, okay. but yeah, I get, I guess it's just the idea that um, maybe that ladder climbing in society is not really going to have the effect that, perhaps you hope it to be because maybe these societal norms and our ideas about class are so entrenched in our society that um, yeah. one person, one man, one family is not going to be able to to change that through their own actions and, you know, may even end up harming themselves. Yeah, no, I think that's right. Cause I mean, we talked at the beginning about how the, the moral ambiguity of this film is what makes it work. And I agree there is moral ambiguity in the film, but I think it is hard to come out the other side of this movie and think that the Kim family is uh, a better, like are better people than the park. Family. Yeah. Like you may, you may roll your eyes or say, you know, this like, rich people, whatever, you know, scoff. And they definitely have their negatives for sure, but they're not out there murdering anyone. They're not out there trying to defend their status in a way, the way that they're defending their status is it is institutionalized socio, like socioeconomic system mm-hmm. uh, that, that they are thriving from that, the, you know, that of course the father is, uh, the, the the Mr. Park is succeeding with and perpetuating through you know the use of these tutor you know 
purchasing tutors for their children, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, and having having all those experiences. But at the same time, I and though I think that there still is moral ambiguity, uh, what's happening with the Kim family seems, uh, we'll say, much more morally ambiguous, or uh, as a better way to put it, uh, morally wrong in some ways. And so I think that that does make it's an interesting statement to make. And I and I don't know necessarily Bong is that's the statement Bong is trying to purport is like the right way to think about society that people should not try to go into different socioeconomic classes than they're in. But the fact that that is how society works when someone tries to pull themselves up, you know, by their bootstraps, so to speak, it isn't an easy thing to do and may actually lead to worse consequences. And that's probably not a good thing, right? And I think that that makes the ending that you you know that you laid out there that you described even more interesting because it's it, it isn't apparent to me that Kiwu is having any different dream probably than his father did and I just wonder if you know the fact that he's daydreaming or, or, or trying to learn from his father mis father's mistakes so to speak in some ways to me it, it's almost difficult to identify what the father's mistakes were that Kiwu will be able to change yeah. and make different about society and not just you know to go back to something that you were talking about make this sort of class thing continue to be cyclical. Yeah, no, I, I think that's a good point that, yeah, maybe even if there is that element of hope there, um, to some to some extent, it is stymied by the fact that, well, yeah, maybe he has this dream, but is he really going to be able to achieve it because of um, the way that, uh, again, these ideas, these ideals are so entrenched in our society? Yeah, because ultimately, you know, a good chunk of that final scene, at least the, the part where he and his father are reunited, mm -hmm. it's a daydream. It's a daydream, yeah. right? And he's daydreaming that he owns this house that they just tried to insinuate themselves into. And look what happened uh, the last time they tried to do that. And so you know, I just wonder if the statement being made isn't one that is critical of society and critical of this idea that, you know, so, you know, social, social mobility is not something that is easily come across. And when it is trying to be forced, uh, bad things happen for those people who are trying to, to climb the social ladder, so to speak. And in, in a way that, in you know, in, in this particular instance, if you're taking the movie quite literally, there's literally infighting between people who are trying to climb the social ladder yeah. to the point where both of them, you know, you either end up dead or you end up worse off than you were before. Uh, and so, I think it's a really interesting statement about society, and I think that it's one that you can't take at face value. Uh, yes, there's this hope, and you know, hope is important. Hope is such a critical part. I mean, hope is. I mean, this isn't an American movie, but hope is the American dream. Yeah, the idea of being able to make whatever you want of yourself. And, and you know, climb that social ladder all the way to the top. You know, that is entrenched in you know, from our perspective, the American dream. I imagine, you know, we, I can't speak for you know, Korean culture, etc. But it's certainly something that I saw, recognized, and identified with. And at the same time, recognizing that the whole the whole movie is about how that's not possible to do, mm -hmm. and it is a bad thing, and bad things happen when you try to do that. And so, I think it's a really interesting uh, finale for the movie for sure. And I guess to go back and answer one of my questions, you know, when I first was watching it, I really did think it was going off the rails, and then when when it does tie it all up and and you sit with it a little bit, it worked for me. I think for the most part. Yeah, no, I, I think that's spot on. You either end up dead or basically dead to society. You know, trapped in this basement. <sighs> Dark. Dark, dark, dark. Meanwhile, the parks just move on to a different house. That that is true. And this German family ends up taking over the the house where they did live. Yeah, yeah. Well, Scott, I think there's a lot to ponder there. We probably yeah. I was about to say.
there might even be some sort of commentary there and just the fact that this is there's some sort of european family that takes mm -hmm. over the the house after they leave but i i don't know that uh yeah we'll probably we'll probably that, draw a line under it there and <laughs> i don't think i'm smart enough to figure out what that is at this particular point yeah you might need a few more viewings mm -hmm. uh anyway i think sky is probably fair enough to enter wrap-up phase now what was your favorite scene from parasite oh man there are so many um we didn't really even talk about the comedy at all. This movie is really funny. Yeah, there there are some there are some very funny moments for sure. I, I think I, talking talking about the comedy since you bring it up, I think one scene that I found kind of amusing was when the they the parks come home and or it, it's when the Kims are underneath the couch basically. Yeah. yeah. Um, and well, the they're underneath the table, but the couch. Yeah. Yeah. The, yeah whatever. Uh, yeah. But the the. Mr. and Mrs. Parks start having sex, um, and what you know while they're underneath there, um, and that is also a very one unexpected the, moment in and, the movie. Yes, and that is one of the moments too where you you first get that sort of Schrodinger um, check off. Yeah, because they smell. They actually, actually, Mr. Kim is actually smelled from underneath the couch. Check off. Yeah, why don't I keep saying Schrodinger? I'm an idiot. Um, no, you're fine. I'm bad at physics or whatever concepts these are, come from. Schrodinger is um, a physics concept, yeah. yeah I don't think Chekhov's is, though. No, I don't think it is either. It's, a, it's like a theater thing. But yeah. um, but so that's one of the first moments you you see that. And to talk about another Chekhov's thing, which I think is is fun in the movie, is the peaches. Um, and the fact that uh, the housekeeper has this, you know, deathly allergy to peaches. Uh, and that's sort of the way that they initially are able to get her out of the house. But then it comes back around uh, in this, like, you know, brutal fight scene that breaks out between them that ends with Ki Jung just shoving a peach in uh, the housekeeper's yeah. face and like making her pass out from the allergic reaction. Yeah. Not just one peach, a lot. I think she comes yes. and like, drops the No, there were several. She just grabbed them out of the fridge. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's a, that was a great scene. I, um, I, so this isn't my, I just want to touch on this because we were just talking about the comedy. I thought it was hilarious when they're having the birthday party. So right before the climactic scenes happen. That Min is randomly at this party because when he they show him getting out of the car, Min being the person who introduced mm -hmm. uh, Ki Wu to the family to be uh, Dai He or I can't Dai remember, he, yeah, yeah, uh, his her English new English tutor. And I thought it was like I was like, oh god, what's gonna happen? Like he's gonna come I back. Think and I like, noticed that. That is kind of weird. Well, no, because the thing is like because it, it isn't brought up at all that like he left and was like told kiwu when he was leaving like i'm gonna you know ask basically at like officially ask her out when she goes to college yeah and they like cuts to the like right after showing him cuts to a scene of them like making out in her room or yeah, whatever i'm just like God, they're just gonna yeah. fucking walk in on each other and it's gonna be terrible and I, that's what I, and then of course the it goes in a completely different much darker direction oh yeah <laughs> for the rest of the scene but I, I thought that was funny but then i think if i had to pick my one of my favorite scenes uh, in the movie is the scene where ki jong which is the daughter in the kim family is for like interacting for the first time with the mother and this complete you know just constantly dunking on her uh with you know all these like random art psychology or art therapy things that she apparently just googled and then i had lived the oh, rest yeah. of it <laughs> i that was such a funny scene and so unexpected yeah and, yeah like picking out the thing on the paint this the oh, part of the painting or the whatever schizophrenic yeah. corner or whatever uh -huh. <laughs> that's how yeah. you know yeah that was hilarious it's really funny yeah scott all right let's put a scar on it what do you go in parasite scott right now this is my number two movie of the year and if on rewatch i'd be surprised if it doesn't climb uh whoa i i, I don't know i wouldn't say i i would 
I wouldn't be surprised if it climbs to number one. It, it, it could climb to number one. I mean, obviously, there's one movie at the top that I think. Because um, I remember you saying earlier this year, there's nothing that will pass this. What yeah, you're currently no. and, and right now, Parasite has not passed it. But I'm leaving open the possibility that it does upon future viewing. Uh, Ten. Good movie. Good score. I'm giving it a nine point five. I don't think that I don't think this is a perfect movie. Not that you have to be perfect to get it to get a ten. Uh, I just do yeah. think there are some things that, and it could this could be mollified on a rewatch. But like the, a couple things that I thought were loose ends or didn't make much sense. Uh, sometimes the nature of these movies, and I appreciate it for like appreciate them for it. They throw a lot at the wall, and sometimes it's hard to close the loop on all the things. And I wonder if on a rewatch, I'll feel like some of those loops are closed, or they're just they're not loose ends, right? But I think that overall, this movie is really good. Um, the most of the characters are interesting, if not all of them, and they almost all play a role. And this is definitely one of the films you need to see this year. All right, Scott, that should just about do it for our discussion of Parasite. Let's take a short break. When we return, we'll be discussing a few pieces of news. And I'm actually not sure. Let's uh, check notes to see if we have any trailers to cover this week. I think we have one or two. We'll be right back. <laughs> Welcome back for part two of today's episode of Some Like It, Scott. Scott, I rifled through all of my notes, and we have managed to find a news in a trailer session for this week. We came really prepared for today's podcast. <laughs> all right, so, you know, I, I think there's like one main thing to talk about. We got multiple pieces of news from the same project this week, and that is to do with Matt Reeves' Batman movie and some casting news related to that. We will get to that in a moment. To hit some other news first, we did hear, uh, of course, this week about a, a new I mean, I should back up and say even further, Robert Eggers, of course, had his latest film come out this weekend, The Lighthouse with Willem Dafoe, Robert Pattinson, a lot of great uh, hype around that black and white psychological thriller uh, of a movie. But he already had, you know, his next movie be announced and some casting for that movie be announced this week. And it's going to be a Viking revenge movie called The Northman. Uh, Willem Dafoe, Anya Taylor-Joy, Bill Skarsgård, Alexander Skarsgård, and Nicole Kidman. Uh, all in talks to star in this film, Scott. You know, I haven't seen The Witch. I am excited about seeing The Lighthouse. I do plan on seeing it. I haven't seen it yet, uh, Scott. But I know that, I, or I shouldn't say I know, I believe that you are a fan of Robert Eggers. Uh, so what do you think about this news? Briefly. Yeah, I mean, I'm a fan of that that film for sure. And uh, I would definitely want to check out The Lighthouse. I mean, this cast is lit, of course. Uh, Anya Taylor-Joy reuniting um, with, with Eggers after The Witch. Um, but I think that, you know, across the board, and, and I mean, I guess you have Willem Dafoe also reuniting with him from the lighthouse. Um, mm -hmm. But yeah, Bill Skarsgård, after after it, chapter two, which I thought he was the definite standout performance in that. Um, I'm really excited to what he can, to see what he can do outside of the uh, it context. And I think this is a great start. Yeah. And then of course, Nicole Kidman and Alexander Skarsgård reuniting from their time on Big Little Lies. That is true. Yeah. All right, Scott. So the main piece of news now to talk about, just go ahead and jump right in. It is the casting news from Matt Reeves as Batman. Of course, we already knew that Robert Pattinson will be starring in the titular role as Batman. And we'd heard talks that Jonah Hill was going to be playing either the Penguin or the Riddler. We thought that he'd be leaning toward the Riddler. Turns out he took a pass on that role. He's not going to take it. And so instead, it is falling into the hands of Paul Dano, and he'll be joining the cast by Zoe Kravitz playing Catwoman. Uh, Scott, we'll break this down in, you know, piece by piece here. Why don't we start with Paul Dano uh, coming in and, and kind of taking the, the void left by Jonah Hill when he took a pass on this role. Is this an exciting bit of casting for you for this movie? 
Yeah, absolutely. I was thrilled to see this. Paul Dano is such a interesting sort of character actor that shows up in supporting roles in a lot of movies, um, always challenges himself, always does something uh, very intriguing that you haven't really seen before. I mean, you know, there will be blood prisoners, Ruby Sparks, some of his credits, um, among many others. I believe he was in Oakja as well um, to keep things relevant. But yeah, and so the the fact that, you know, he, he's not a super well-known name, however, and, you know, he, he's known for, for some weirder roles in these movies. And so I am interested to see what he does with the Riddler character. I think he could take it in a really sort of weird, quirky direction, um, which I think uh, is, is not sort of the vibe that I got from this project so far in the way that it's been cast, but uh, is something that I would be really... Um, on board for because we have had so many Batman projects um, that I think something something that tries to do a little bit something a little bit different um, is not I, I'm not going to be opposed to that and so I think that Paul Dano is a great bit of casting if indeed they do want to do something a little bit different because he's not somebody's name he's he's not a name that I think was coming up really on anyone's list for casting in this movie and so I like that. Um, Matt Reeves is sort of plucking people out of left field. Sort of, I think Zoe Kravitz is probably a little bit more um, on the nose, but we'll get to that in a second. But I mean, e even the Pattinson casting as Batman, I think, you know, is a little is a little out out of left field. Um, even though people Definitely. predicted it was going to happen, um, I think that. So, but but I think that I guess what I'm saying is, in combination with the Paul Dano casting, now I am excited about the direction that this movie is going to take because we still don't know much about the plot of this movie, if anything. Um, and so, yeah, well, there's rumors that it's going to be the long Halloween, and, and right. I mean, it's basically almost confirmed, not officially, but like almost confirmed, it's going to be a trilogy of movies. So, well, I, I mean, I, I'm super pumped for it. I, this Paul Dano casting, I think, is great. Also, you should mention that the great Michael Giacchino was announced as going to be scoring this movie, so that gets me excited too. And I don't have to mention it because you did. So thank you very much for doing that. Uh, yeah, no, I think that this is a great cast. And I loved Paul Dano in Prisoners. I want to see him in more stuff. I loved him in There Will Be Blood as well. thought he was fantastic. And you're right. This is going a different direction than, uh, not necessarily a different direction, but it's a different direction than Jonah Hill would have been. You know, Paul Dano, not as well known as Jonah Hill in terms of name recognition. And I think that when it comes to having a Batman movie, I don't know if you need a household name like, I mean, at least to the extent that Jonah Hill is relative to Paul Dano. And I think that if you get a really good character actor in there who can really knock this particular role out of the park, because I don't think anyone necessarily feels like Jim Carrey knocked this role out of the park uh, when he did it no. in Batman. Was it forever? I forget which one he was Batman in. forever. Yeah. Yeah. And so I think this role is there for the taking and, and I have faith that Paul Dano is going to do it just in the way that I think that I have faith. That I think that, that uh, our Pats is going to be knocking out of the park with Batman too. I'm really yeah. excited about that casting a piece of casting that I'm not excited about though, if I'm being honest and maybe you can add some context here. I'm not particularly thrilled about Zoe Kravitz being Catwoman, And that is, that has to be said, taken with a grain of salt because my girl Zazie beats uh, couldn't be a part of this project and was the one they picked for this project. Uh, because of uh, filming for Atlanta, and I just couldn't give a shit about that TV show, and I'm really pissed about about her not being Catwoman. Yeah, no, I, I think you have a, a bit of a personal stake in this, but you know, of course, I wanted on the aforementioned Anya Taylor Joy to um, get that casting as well. So yeah, yeah but I, it did seem like they were going for a sure. black woman for the casting, which is, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, and yeah, I, I guess I'm just kind of a big meh on this. Uh, I've never seen, Zoe Kravitz has never really wowed me in anything. I think that 
I will say, though, as a caveat, that I think I didn't like what they did with her character, really, in the season of Big Little Lies. So uh, I think that maybe the fact that um, I didn't take to her as much was more about the writing and also the fact that you have such a sterling cast um, in Big Little Lies. But I mean, you know, I mean, that this role is going to be so, so, so different than than Mm -hmm. uh, I forget. I even forget the name of her character in Big Little Lies. But yeah, it's going to show her range. I guess you have Mad Max Fury Road, but even that she wasn't like a huge role in. Um, but yeah, so I, I, I guess this is this is a big mess. I mean, some people seem to be excited about it. Yeah, you know, obviously glad that they picked a diverse actress. Um, yeah. But I just hope this goes a little bit better than the last time they picked a diverse actress for Catwoman, Halle Berry. Oh man, I just cannot voice enough frustration that it's not Zazie Beetz because I thought she would have been perfect for the role. But whatever, man. All right, Scott, let's move on to our one trailer for the week. I think it technically came out last week, but we didn't quite catch. Oh, no, it came out on Monday. Never mind. Ignore me. Um, but it's Bombshell. We got a we got an official trailer for for the first official full-length ta- trailer. We did get a teaser earlier uh, this year about it, and that is, of course, the Fox News. It's not really a biopic, but very a la big short uh, dramatization of history type where, of course, all of the sexual harassment allegations around Roger Ailes and Fox News uh, being brought movie starring Charlize Theron uh, as she is she Megan Kelly. No, sh- uh, Charlize is uh, she's Gretchen Carlson. Gretchen Carlson, yes, yeah, yeah, she's Gretchen Carlson. Uh, Nicole Kidman is Megan. No, Kelly. no, 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 no. no I, Charlize. Charlize is Megan, is Megan Kelly. Yeah. Nicole Kidman is Gretchen Carlson, uh-huh. and then um, Margot Robbie. Margot Robbie is some. Uh, the other it's not a real person, but an aggregation of apparently a bunch of different women. Yeah. At Fox News. Uh, I think her name is like Pospisil or something. I can't remember the name of the character in the movie. Uh, but Scott, we get this first trailer cut to uh, Billy Eilish, bad bad guy. Uh, I thought this trailer slapped. Uh, Scott, you had a few you had a few reservations, which we hashed out uh, in our in our chat. Do you want to hash that out on air as well? Well, I mean, yeah, I'll just say that like, and this isn't really anything about the trailer, I guess. No, no, it's not. I, although I will say, bad guy. Tad on the nose, but uh, the song the song bangs. Um, but I think that this does smack of Vice a little bit. Um, you have, you, yeah, you, you have an obviously very uh, liberal slanted, I guess, story. Although I think that this story more than the Dick Cheney yeah. story, I guess, it, it's something that sort of transcends politics. But um, L- liberal slanted story in that it was a conservative newbie sexually harassing women, right. not that other liberal media that hasn't also. I mean, Matt at Matt Lauer. Uh, but yeah, go ahead. Yes, in so so insofar as you can actually um, you know I- impose that title on it. I, it, it obviously is coming from that perspective, like you mentioned. Uh, but also the fact that. Um, it looks like there's a little bit of weaving of comedy and drama going on in the trailer. Um, but also the the fact that the director of this movie is Jay Roach, who, like Adam McKay, who directed Vice, um, is, uh, you know, known for doing uh, mainstream comedies. I mean, Jay Roach, I believe, did uh, The Campaign and some other, like, Will Ferrell movies, maybe some other mainstream comedies, like, the only other sort of drama that he's done is Trumbo, which I think was just like a very boilerplate Oscar baby, you know, drama. Um, and so I, I, I am, you know, I, I'm taking pause a little bit at this movie just because I'm treading lightly after Vice, which obviously, you know, was an abomination. Not, Abom- appa- not, apparently, 
not not apparently uh, uh, obvious to everyone based on the fact that it did win some some awards last year, if I remember correctly. That being said, Jay Rich, I think you're missing the most obvious one that he's responsible for. He did Austin Powers, uh, but in terms yes, of like comedies, yes. yeah, he did Austin Powers. But yeah, obviously you have an incredibly talented trio of actresses there up top. I think this is going to be an important story in the Me Too era, uh, and I am hopeful that this movie is good. But even if it's not. From what I've heard, the Showtime series with Russell Crowe playing Roger Ailes is actually pretty excellent. Yeah, that's what I've heard as well. But I, I, I liked yeah. the good look of John, you know, John Lithgow uh, in this in this role. I thought, yeah, that no, really... they made him look hideous. Yeah, I mean, like they really made him up. They really did, and I, I'm really excited to to see what that role looks like in in full slant so to speak or you know the full picture here and i think one thing that this movie probably will have over i actually two things that this movie has over vice one is it has rather than adam mckay writing, it has charles randolph who is the writer uh who is the writer for the big yeah. short which adam I'm mckay directed i'm sorry i said i meant to mention that that's all oh yeah so i think Char- having charles randolph as the writer for this uh will be a huge benefit because i'd imagine i mean, I mean the fact that adam mckay wrote vice i think was a big part of it and you know, people thought that something like Vice, or at least we thought that something like Vice would have been better coming off of the big short uh, because, of course, Adam McKay directing it. But I think uh, what was showed was that the story that Adam McKay crafted sucked uh, big time. <laughs> and I'm hoping that Charles Randolph, you know, having having him as the writer here and having the success of the big short is a big positive for me. And I also think the fact that the central points of the movie you know, it, Vice, of course, the central point was Dick Cheney. The central point of this movie is not Roger Ailes. The center point of this movie is the women at Fox News. And I think that that is something that this movie, if it is able to stay focused on that and, and stay away from maybe just dragging Roger Ailes at every second, which is basically what Vice was doing constantly uh, for Dick Cheney, I think that this movie can escape the trappings that uh, so ailed Vice. Yeah, no, I think so too. Big short, much better Adam McKay movie than... Vice. At the very least, I hope that Bombshell will not have a post-credit scene or a mid-credit scene as appalling as the one in Vice. Yes, well. Uh, on that note, we will end the podcast before uh, our listeners think that, that we are appalling. Yeah. Well, Scott, that should do it for episode 62 of Some Like It. Scott, Scott, where can people find you on Twitter? At Scarby Dent. Oh, and hey, I will plug this while we're doing the social media section. Wake Forest Mock Trial now on Insta- Instagram. Follow them at WFU Mock Trial. There you go. Forget Scott's Twitter handle. Just follow Wake Forest Mock Trial on Instagram. And we're on Twitter too, but we've been on Twitter for a bit. Well, then it doesn't matter. It's not relevant anymore. I'm kidding. Uh, You can find me on Twitter at shelton 2013 And you can find our podcast on Twitter at MediaPlugPods. We'd love it even more, however, if you check us out out on our podcast Patreon page at www.patreon.com slash MediaPlugPods, where there are a bunch of different reward tiers to check out, depending on how much you're willing or able to pledge the podcast. And we'd appreciate it so much, even if you only contributed at the $1 level. So again, that's www.patreon.com slash MediaPlugPods. Check it out for yourself. Pick the tier that's right for you. And if you choose not to support us over on Patreon, that's totally fine. You can still find us on Apple Podcasts, Podbean, Spotify, pretty much everywhere at this point that you can find podcasts. Uh, we're, we're almost everywhere, I think, at this point. Let us know if there's somewhere that we're not. We can try to get on there as well. Uh, you, and uh, if you can subscribe and share all that jazz that you normally do, rate, review, uh, we'd really appreciate that. All right. I've said enough. We we appreciate <laughs> so much appreciation, <laughs> all of you, for taking the time out of your day to listen to us chat about movies. We'll be back next week in honor of Halloween with our review of Zombieland Double Tap. Until then, for Scott Harvey. I'm Scott Shelton. We'll see you next time.
Thank you.